1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For
2: the first time since 2016, the three leaders of Canada, the United States, and Mexico are meeting face-to-face today. What is going to be on the agenda? Well, we'll find out now. We're joined by our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so what's going to happen today?
3: So this is going to be a kind of jam-packed schedule for the Prime Minister after a day where he met with members uh, on Capitol Hill including the Senate minority majority leaders and uh, the majority minority in the House. Uh, he's going to be holding some bilateral meetings first off with the Mexican president, with the vice president later this afternoon, and then he'll sit down and do a one-on-one with President Joe Biden as well. This is where they'll be able to kind of hammer out those really critical and crucial issues that have been kind of become irritants in Ottawa before he moves to the big trilateral meeting like you mentioned the first time in 6 years this is going to be an opportunity to get all three govern or all three countries working together after that frayed relationship under Donald Trump but that relationship that was frayed is still frayed
2: really. So nothing has really improved, has it? People had a lot of hopes that, oh, everything was going to be different with Joe Biden. That has not been the case.
3: Yeah. And look, it's because during the Donald Trump administration, President, uh, rather Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was able to kind of push back on the rhetoric and was able to, you know, kind of uh, calm things down in Canada. When you have someone like Joe Biden in power, uh, he is along the same lines ideologically as uh, Justin Trudeau, but at the same time is also trying to work this kind of conciliatory role in the United States of making sure that America brings itself back to where it once was before Donald Trump. And in doing so, he's kind of ignoring the kind of pressing needs that Canada and Mexico have. And that really is keeping that you know bromance that once existed between Barack Obama and Justin Trudeau on the back burner right now. That that camaraderie just isn't there yet between the president and prime minister.
2: Okay, that is so interesting. So I understand there's two big things, two big items on the agenda. Uh, One of them having to do with how Canada is going to reduce restrictions against travelers, right? That was a big topic last night?
3: Uh, so look, there, there, there's a big uh, kind of three things that are going to be talked about. The pandemic and border is going to be an issue. Electric vehicles is going to be an issue. Uh, and then kind of energy and 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 clean energy and things to do with minerals in the supply chain. These are all going to be the three biggest talkers. Uh, if you're talking about uh, uh, the movement of people back and forth, if you're talking about the borders, uh, that's going to be uh, the conversation linked to PCR testing. We obviously know that is an issue for many of the local uh, and, and leaders, uh, political leaders on uh, Uh, from U.S. border cities, uh, something that they are trying to get rid of. It's not being done yet. Worth pointing out that there are still testing requirements that America's put in place at the southern border. They just want to see them released at the northern border. So that's going to be a conversation back and forth to potentially kind of uh, uh, bring into a more harmonious way uh, the policies that are linked to border policy.
2: Right. Okay. And then what's the deal with this whole Buy America situation that I know Canada, in particular the province of Ontario, is very upset about?
3: Well, look, under Donald Trump, there was this kind of America first mentality that had all these protectionist policies that were put in place. And Joe Biden is really kind of moving forward with that Trump playbook of keeping America in the center. And mostly we're looking at things like electric vehicles. Under the Build Back Better plan that Biden has put forward, it would give rebates of, of, uh, up to $12,000 for the purchase of electric vehicles made in the United States. The White House yesterday said that's a way to kind of lure, uh, companies into the United States to, to build these vehicles. Ottawa and Mexico, for that point, uh, say, look, this stands in the way of an integrated auto sector. And if you're going to have these kind of incentives for America, what does that do to the Canadian auto sector? Does that potentially put jobs at risk? So we heard from the deputy prime minister yesterday and from the prime minister himself say this is going to be a big topic of conversation to push back on these protectionist measures that Joe Biden is keeping in place. That's also kind of keeping that friendship from moving forward.
2: Right. Because like we just finished renegotiating the whole free trade agreement.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and and yesterday Christopher Freeland said this stands in the way of that agreement. There are potential violations that are going to come of that agreement that's still, you know, being implemented, not just between Canada and the US, but between Mexico and the US as well because there are kind of pressures on Mex on the Mexican government to deal with uh it's its minimum standards and the way that uh, it's its unions work. So, the way that the US is moving forward under Joe Biden, he's trying to build back his economy, but it At the same time, what it's doing is putting pressure and potentially going to whittle away at what's already a shaky economy in Canada and Mexico.
2: Okay, so this sounds like it's a very ambitious agenda then. This isn't just like a friendly meeting.
3: Yeah. And look, the White House has been very cautious to say that they're not really expecting any deliverables to be figured out and worked out. This is just that opportunity to have a conversation that's not done virtually. Uh, but considering there are so many competing ideas uh, and, and issues on the table, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're able to kind of work through the conversations with a meaningful outcome of this is what we might be able to do down the road. But when you're dealing with things like critical infrastructure, when you're dealing with things uh, like trade issues and an ongoing pandemic, along with issues linked to line five. And we already know that Ottawa is upset over Keystone. Uh, This is going to be a a big conversation that doesn't just wrap up today. This will probably be the first of many going forward, uh, because you can't just hammer out every issue that was on the back burner for four years in a couple of hours in one day.
2: Now, Reggie, is it fair to say that there has been criticism leveled at the US president? uh, Because he has up until now, it seems like been more focused on international relations like overseas and not necessarily North American relations?
3: There has been criticism of that, uh, mostly because what Joe Biden said that he wanted to do was build back better on these relationships that he felt were torn apart under the previous administration. But what that does is kind of forgets about the fact that there are a domestic policies in the United States that, well, he has been focused on when it comes to things like infrastructure and massive legislation that deals with, you know, trillions of dollars in spending for social welfare programs. Uh, what it does is kind of ignore the pressing issues that have to do with the next door neighbors to the United States, not paying attention to things, uh, that lead to an integrated continental way of doing trade. So there's been criticism that he's focused too much on trying to repair what Donald Trump might have broken over four years and not focusing on the issues that might impact Americans you know, to the bone, like inflation, while also not paying attention quite as much to what Ottawa and Mexico City are saying when they say, look, we need to be working together. We can't just have our countries operating individually.
2: Uh, should be very interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, that is our Global News Washington correspondent talking about the meeting that is happening where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Washington, D.C. for the summit, the first since 2016, meeting face-to-face with U.S. President Joe Biden and Mexican President André Manuel López Obrador. So lots to talk about there. Buy American provisions, especially for EVs, is huge on the list, but also border testing requirements. Apparently, Canada has said that there will be a three-phase Plan to remove border testing requirements, the first step being for Canadians, and that is if you're down in the United States for less than 72 hours, then you do not have to show a PCR test upon your return, a negative PCR test. Now, that would mean good news for a lot of people who would like to go down there. I'm wondering if that changes things for you. Let me know, simi at cknw.com.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: As we've been hearing, the federal government is expected to announce this week that it is dropping the negative PCR test requirement for Canadians returning from the United States for any trip that is shorter than 72 hours. That's a big change, right? That's going to cover both citizens and permanent residents, apparently. And it's expected those new rules will come into effect at the end of November. So if you're gone longer than 72 hours, you still need the negative PCR test upon return. That, of course, in and of itself is a whole other debate. But we thought, let's talk about this. What is this going to change? Joining us now is Anita Hopperman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Good morning, Simi. Now, what did you think about this news?
4: We're very pleased. Uh, As many know, uh, we've been advocating for this PCR test to be scrapped. Uh, We even joined forces with the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce and uh, voiced our concern about the severity and impact of families and workplaces related to this PCR test, which simply did not make sense. It was expensive. Uh, but, uh, you know, we knew that uh, Canada's top doctor, Teresa Tam, was looking at this uh, and uh, November 21st is the date to watch. We're watching very closely, observing very closely as to what the announcement will entail later this week when we hear it.
2: So I'm just curious, Anita, then why would Surrey businesses want to see this requirement lifted? Because has it not been beneficial to have more people staying home and buying all these things?
4: Well, Surrey is a a border city, and this week the uh, Cascadia Innovation Corridor Conference is taking place. I'm speaking at it shortly this morning, and we are in a regional economy. Uh, Many uh, people, many uh, workers, uh, they go back and forth across that border to do business. They have family. uh, They have relationships. Um, All of this uh, stress related to the cost of the PCR test, which could be as low as $150 a test or as high as $300 a test, uh, was really creating stress and anxiety for workers, uh, which uh, was eroding bottom line productivity is what we were hearing so, uh, yes, of course, we support Buy Local, uh, and we want those businesses in Canada to be supported, but we are in a regional economy. Uh, we're in a global economy um, with uh, Washington State, uh, with Oregon, and, uh, and of course, uh, interprovincially as well.
2: So, do you think this will make a difference, then? If there's no negative test requirement for trips that are shorter than 72 hours, what kind of a difference will that make? It's
4: going to make a huge difference. Uh, people that uh, own property, Canadians that own property across that border, they're going to be able to see their property for the first time in many cases in um, close to two years. And they're going to be able to visit family. They're not going to have to worry about this uh, this test. I mean, certainly, um, and even our Canadian Chamber of Commerce uh, in Ottawa our head office is calling for the PCR test to be scrapped altogether, even for longer term trips. There is a way for border innovation, health and safety to be secure uh, for. Those that are fully vaccinated to ensure that we have evidence of that uh, when we need to make changes, uh, given pandemic uh, changes related to COVID 19 and other crises, that that border can remain open, that those flows of goods and people remain open. Uh, we're, we're in a global economy and, and never before has that been evident in, during the pandemic.
2: So, is it time then for just all of it to be removed? do you think do you think people are ready for that?
4: I think there is a way to uh get rid of it altogether, even for longer term trips. There needs to be a dialogue of course, with the private sector that's what we've been calling on, as has the Canadian Chamber with the federal government's Canada. A U.S. Relations Committee. Uh, There's been no dialogue with the private sector, by the way, uh, in any of these uh, decisions related to the border. But um, there is a way to move forward uh, to ensure that the economy for both goods movement, people movement, um, that that those eliminating those unnecessary steps, leveraging technology, uh, doing processing in advance. You know, there is a way forward to ensure that easy flow of goods and people across that border.
2: You mentioned that you have been speaking with people down in Bellingham, too. What kind of a difference would it make for them, do you think?
4: What do they tell you? Huge. Um, uh, Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce as well. Um, Many Canadians, most of their residents are Canadians in Point Roberts, Uh, But for Bellingham, it will make a significant difference. Uh, They rely on uh, Canadian... Um, consumers um, Canadians are part of their economy and that's why we're having this conference um, which started yesterday uh, with the Cascadia Innovation Corridor at the Sheraton Wall Center uh, today about how our economies um, on both sides of the border are so intricately aligned the opportunities are immense as we move beyond uh, the pandemic. But we need to reduce that red tape. We need to ensure that border remains open fully.
2: Okay, and has there been any indication from the federal government about the date for this, when this might happen?
4: Well, we're looking at uh, November 21st, which is when the federal government's Ordering Council Uh, indicates that um, there may or may not be a revision in those uh, border and travel restrictions. Uh, We're going to hear a little bit this week, is what I'm hearing, um, but more in the weeks to come. But November 21st is really when that Order and Council is due to expire by the Canadian government on those uh, PCR tests for longer-term trips.
2: All right, we'll see what happens. Anita, thanks for your time.
4: Thank you. Have a good morning.
2: Anita Hoverman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. They are happy to hear that a negative test requirement uh, for returning travelers of less than 72 hours is in the works for the federal government. But how about you? Does this change things for you? Does this mean that you can now start planning your trips down there again? I know a lot of people in Surrey do that, right? Get their milk, get their cheese, get their gas, whatever it is. Does that mean that you'll be doing that as soon as this requirement is dropped? Let me know. Simi at CKNW.com.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: I can only imagine what a stressful and anxiety-ridden week this has been for so many people, especially those who have been deeply impacted by the flooding situation. It's an ongoing situation for many people, particularly on the Sumas Prairie, people in Hope, but there are people who are heading home in the last 24 hours, those who have been stranded in Hope since, well, Sunday afternoon. It's been awful. Hopefully, we can get more and more people out today. But we did want to find out like, what it has been like for people who essentially were stranded in Hope. nowhere to go. So joining us now is Scott Mason, who along with his partner, they were stuck in Hope in their pickup truck. They join us now. Scott, thanks for being with us. Good morning. And where where are you now?
5: Uh, I'm relieved to say I'm back at home in Burnaby.
2: Oh, how did that happen? Tell us about it.
5: Uh, after being stuck for three nights in Hope, we really weren't looking forward to spending a fourth night in the pickup truck, but uh, we were at the high school in Hope. They had two sort of warming centers set up there, and uh, they gathered everybody in the auditorium in the high school for an announcement and said that Highway 7 would be open briefly, partially, to get people out of Hope yesterday afternoon. Uh, so we headed there. and It took uh, quite a few hours, but they sort of convoyed everybody through the slide areas on Highway 7 and back to freedom.
2: Okay, so it sounds like it was pretty orderly.
5: It was. It was really well organized, quite orderly. Um, the person at the high school said that they were making the announcement simultaneously there and at the church, so the two main warming centers, and just announced that uh, if everyone would like to head over towards Highway 7. So there was a a long line of vehicles, but it was uh, very orderly, and they had, uh, I guess, a a pilot car at the front of the line taking people through the the worst of the slide areas. And the, the pilot car pulled off, and everyone was heading down towards Agassiz.
2: Well, that must have been such a relief for you, Scott. Does it feel like the last couple of days, does it feel like it must have happened in a dream or something?
5: Um, I don't know that dream is quite the right word. Um, the three nights sleeping in the pickup truck wasn't all that dreamy.
2: Yeah, what was it like in Hope during that time?
5: Um, it was actually really good. Um, well, under the circumstances, uh, the town pulled together. Um, we were parked at the, the side of the, the side of the road with a lot of other vehicles, obviously. And there were local residents people coming by with bottles of water and letting us know that um, if we needed to, to get warm, the, the church and the school were available and um, no, that um, anybody who needed help was able to get it.
2: And what was the food situation like?
5: Um, sandwiches Hot soup, um, lots of fruit, snacks, um, all available for free in the school and the church. Um, the the Flying J truck stop was great. Um, I don't know how they had such a, a big reserve of, of food on hand, but um, we could purchase pizza and snacks and things from there, and they never ran out. That's amazing. So uh, Yeah, it, it was. Um, so it was no one was, no one was really in need.
2: It sounds like the community, like everybody, took care of each other.
5: They did, yeah.
2: Oh, kind of, it's a bit of heartwarming, though, isn't it?
5: Yeah, um, no, everybody pulled together when they had to, um, and I, I didn't see any so arguments or disputes about your parts in my spot or, or none of that sort of thing. It was, uh, it was all pretty good. It was everybody you can't blame anyone for what's going on. Yeah. And so we just had to make the best of it. And uh, from what I saw, everybody did.
2: Now, um, Scott, I know you were stranded there, but you know on this side of things, there's been a lot of criticism of how the government has handled it. Not enough organization, not enough information. But what was it like for you? Was there enough information? How do you feel on that?
5: Um, that was a challenging one, getting information. Um, the The traffic flaggers, were at all the uh, highway on-ramps and key areas preventing people from driving where they shouldn't. And that was where we were getting most of our information from. But it was, um, uh, I guess the big problem was nobody knew. And fair enough, how could anybody know? They were working, obviously, really hard on clearing the blockages on Highway 7. And I expect similarly working on Highway 1. And uh, I, I don't think, Anybody initially knew what would be cleared first, and once they cleared all the debris off the road, was there road still underneath that or had it been washed away? And so it wasn't until shortly before opening that I guess they decided what path was going to be the best way out and how to get people out of there. So uh, information was a bit challenging, but um, when they finally did decide that Highway 7 was going to be the path out, um, the the announcement was was quite well coordinated.
2: Okay, so good to know. Do you think most people got out from what you could see? All the people that you were parked around there with, everybody got out last night.
5: Um, as far as I could see, yes. Although there were a lot of people like who had been there by bus or were traveling or were were expecting to be picked up by friends, and those who did not have their own vehicles. And the other part of that announcement was that Via Rail had provided a train and that was going to be available at the same time to take people back to Vancouver.
2: All right. Well, you know what? I'm glad you're home safe, Scott. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us.
5: All right. Thank you.
2: Appreciate that. That is Scott Mason. He had been stranded in hope since Sunday uh, because of the flooding and the washouts and the landslides. And as you heard, a very well-organized convoy getting people out last night on Highway 7. They're just trying to get people out right now. And then they're going to close Highway 7 again so they can do the major cleanup on that road.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com/system. Now let's take you live to Mayor Henry Braun, Abbotsford. The flooding
6: update. Let's listen in. To the Semeth, Matsqui, and Lacombe First Peoples. I'm Henry Braun, Mayor, City of Abbotsford. Overnight, uh, conditions have maintained maintained with water levels continuing to change depending on the location. Evacuation orders remain the same. However, some alerts have been rescinded overnight. We encourage people to keep looking at the website at at the uh, Abbotsford.ca site for updates as they are posted and as they occur. In total, we have evacuated and registered close to 600 people. At the last update, we had approximately 100 evacuees located at Tradex, and I do want to stress that Tradex is fully equipped to support people at this time. I encourage people who want to donate uh, to visit the city's website, and you'll get instructions and directions there. The floodwaters from the Nooksack River continue to flow northeasterly across the Sumas Prairie, and water levels there continue to rise toward the east, the east of of, uh, the prairie. This is a situation that we are very closely monitoring. The Barrowtown pump station is operating at full capacity and as I mentioned last night approximately 500,000 gallons per minute go through that pump station. There has not been uh, any change at Barrowtown overnight and again the conditions there are being monitored closely. City water services remain turned off to Sumas Prairie. Our crews did locate uh, the, water, the water main break last night, along with some additional breaks. Our crews remain focused on repairing this so that we can uh, get that critical infrastructure back online. And I hope to have updates on the status of this later today. I understand the Prime Minister has now announced that he is sending Canadian forces uh, forces assets to British Columbia. I don't have any specific details regarding where these will be deployed at this time. We remain in contact with our government partners and as we start to move toward the recovery phase of this emergency, uh, as we continue to uh, or on uh, to move toward the recovery of a phase of this emergency is what I meant to say. The city is and will continue to work closely with our neighbors, service providers and First Nations to address the ongoing and changing needs of our community. The local state of emergency continues to evolve and we will keep everyone updated as we can. The safety of Abbotsford residents uh, remains everyone's priority. I will now turn the conference over to Chief uh, Darren Lee from Abbotsford Fire Rescue for his update.
2: All right, so that is the continuing update right now. We'll bring you any information, but it sounds like they are staying the course right now. Uh, We'll have more information as it becomes available, but we also want to talk about the animal welfare issue that has been highlighted by officials, not just locally, but provincially as well. That area of the Sumas Prairie that has been flooded is home to so many farms uh, here in BC and to talk about the animal welfare issue right now and more. Lana Popham joins us, BC's Minister of Agriculture. Thank you very much for joining us.
7: Good morning, Simi.
2: Thank you for your patience as well. We wanted to make sure we get the information out about this. Uh, What is the latest on the number of farms, do you think, that have animals that are still there?
7: Uh, Well, that's a great question, and that's information that we continue to gather. Um, It's... I our estimate right now is is in the hundreds of farms uh and uh, thousands of th- thousands and thousands of animals but we are getting uh farmers that are now reporting out to us um especially the farmers that have been able to rescue animals and relocate them into other barns you know in every disaster you start to see some pretty amazing human stories coming out and yesterday i got a an email from a dairy farmer who in Chilliwack who worked with a bunch of other dairy farms and relocated an entire dairy herd from one farm into uh, buddy farms uh, in, in their neighboring areas. And so uh, that's a success story that, you know, we're, we're, we're so proud of everybody that took part in that rescue, but unfortunately there's farms that are still stranded and, and we're unable to get to them.
2: And how are we going to get food and supplies to the animals that have survived?
7: So we're looking at every option. So right now there's being assessments being done around the clock on the safety of the roads. We do know that uh, the poultry industry and the dairy industry is in, today's a a really important day. So uh, they need feed, but they also really need clean water. Uh, We don't, we do know that Poultry farmers were able to get through in smaller vehicles to supply some poultry farms with water uh, in the Sumas area, and then um, the dairy farms now are are in critical need of feed. So we're looking at um, all all avenues of how to to get feed and water to these these areas, including air.
2: We've lost a lot of animals, though, haven't we?
7: Yeah, we have. Yeah, there's there's. There's definitely going to have to be, um, that's going to have to be pretty high up on, on the list of issues that we're going to have to deal with because the, the mortality level is very high. Yesterday alone, we probably, in one farmer's barns, poultry barns, we probably lost 80,000 poultry. How are
2: farmers going to move forward? What kind of support will the government give them?
7: Well, they will have access to disaster relief. Definitely, we also have programs that are built into the Ministry of Agriculture that that deal with uh, loss. But um, as far as rebuilding um, and ju- you know just trying to get people back on their feet after this, um, we we've committed to partner with the federal government uh, ourselves uh, to to make sure that that we we get people up and and recovered. So it's a it's a long, long road ahead of us. And unfortunately, we don't, we don't even really know what that means at the moment because in so many ways, the disaster is still playing out. I've been making uh, a lot of calls to farmers just to let them know we're here. And of course, I'm asking them, what do you need? And, and it's sad because they, they don't know. They don't know what they need yet. But we're going to be there when they f- we figure that out. Um, but we've got a long ways until we're at that point.
2: And I understand there's some work being done to try to get veterinarians to some of these farms.
7: Yes. Well, there are, so uh, unfortunately some of the animals that have survived are now undergoing health concerns and we will have to see euthanizations happen, but we need to be able to get vets into these areas. So that we're looking at that today. And
2: I understand the Agricultural Animal and Health Lab in the valley has also been flooded. What did that lab do and how is that going to be replaced?
7: Yes, this is a, a really important piece of infrastructure that we use in the province to support all types of agriculture. So uh, it's a plant and animal uh, lab, so we do d- disease testing on on plants, and then we do um, we do disease testing on animals. So uh, we one of the pieces of infrastructure that is underwater, unfortunately, is an incinerator, and uh, that's used to incinerate uh, diseased animals. That's we're we're offline with that now. Uh, that's in the basement of the lab, but staff can't access any of the equipment or the computers in that lab so um, it's it's a real real problem we test uh, milk there that goes into the the human supply uh, but we've had some really generous offers from saskatchewan and alberta that have offered us their lab services which we're going to take them up on and so um it, for 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 a disaster like this Simi, me, it's uh, it's all hands on deck, and and we we know other provinces are going to be there with us as we try and and figure this out. It, it you know I'm getting emails and texts right across Canada from um, uh, other ministers of agriculture, but also from businesses. I had a, a gentleman who operates a large fan company from. Uh, Western Canada that's offering equipment. What can we do? What can we send? So, the generosity of Canadians is going to is going to be really obvious, and we're going to need that generosity.
2: Yeah, is it fair to say that we don't fully understand the extent of this yet, and and what this is going to do to BC's food sustainability?
7: Well, yeah, I you know we we don't understand what's going to happen really at this point. But I can tell you that a lot of the farms that have been damaged in the Fraser Valley are part of a supply management system. So it's a, it's a national system. BC is responsible for producing a certain percentage of what Canadians uh, consume when it comes to eggs milk, dairy, and so that's the our farmers are part of that scheme. Um, When something goes down across Canada other provinces are able to pick up on the production so I don't think we're going to see we're not going to see any food shortages but we really need those farms to get uh, back to work as soon as we can get them there uh, because it's a really large part of our economy in the Fraser Valley and in the province. But we also have other areas of the province that are highly productive and there's a lot of there's a lot of farmers that um, are still producing right now into our food system. A really interesting story coming out of the Fraser Valley, there's a, a farm called Forest Bower Farms. They're a certified organic large farm and they were submerged completely Uh, On Monday, the waters have subsided. I've talked to the farmers and I said, What about the crops that are there? And you know, it's just it just shows the resilience of the human spirit. The farmer said, Yep, it'll grow back. And then the next day, they were online saying, we've got tons of stuff that we stored, that's fine. We're, we're sales online, sales as usual. So wow. there's still farms in the Fraser Valley that are going to be able to operate and provide into our food system. So um, yeah, so that's a little bit of a silver lining.
2: Well, thank you very much for the update this morning. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Samit. Bye-bye. Lana Popham, BC's Minister of Agriculture.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, we've seen the pictures already, right? I've heard the stories from people. You've been emailing me all morning about what happened when you went to the grocery store in the last 24 hours that people are trying to stock up, leading to some empty shelves. Listen, the government has said this. Uh, The owner of Save on Foods has said, like, everybody has been saying this. The stores will be restocked. It might just take a little longer, but they're saying supplies will be there. But there are still concerns because we know that many farms, uh, farms that provide us with a lot of dairy, a lot of product, are devastated. And we don't know if they're ever going to be able to get back up and running. So will we see shortages? Will there be higher prices too that we have to worry about? What about this backlog at the Port of Vancouver? What does that mean for the rest of Canada? Well, to talk more about all of this, this disruption in supply and our trade routes, uh, Sylvain Charlebaud joins us now, the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Thanks for being back with us.
8: Well, good morning, Cindy.
2: What kind of an impact do you think we're going to feel from this?
8: Um, I, I actually don't think it's pretty, uh, to be honest. Uh, the I mean, the Abbotsford area, I've actually visited that area several times, and uh, it's a huge hit on, on BC's agri-food sector. Uh, I'm just thinking about uh, dairy, poultry, eggs. Uh, these are intensive uh production uh, facilities yet you need trucks to go there every single day and and these trucks aren't going there they're moving livestock they've lost livestock uh, it's not going to be pretty for a while so my guess uh is that uh farmers are going to be financially uh handicapped for, for a while the other issue the other concern that I have uh, for the rest of Canada, really, is, is the Port of Vancouver. Uh, you, um, I mean, numbers are pretty impressive uh, when you look at what's go- what goes on at the port every single year. Uh, last year in 2020, uh, al- almost $12 billion worth of agri-food commodities actually went through the Port of Vancouver. That's basically $35 million worth a day, a day, and that. That is, is, is severely compromised right now, and that really will impact farmers in the rest of the country. It will impact people waiting for ingredients, companies waiting for ingredients as well. So it's going to slow things down. Of course, you, always, you can always go through the U.S., but it's going to cost more, and that's going to impact, again, food prices.
2: And that is right across the country, right? Because I know we're concerned here in B.C., but it makes it sound like everybody is going to be impacted by this.
8: Yeah, exactly. Now, I I don't think that uh, British Columbians' food security will uh, is 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 at stake here. I actually do believe that the uh, supply chains will will get reorganized. We'll make sure that British Columbians actually have something to buy, something to eat, uh, because people have migrated out of uh, of merit in different areas. So. Of course, um, empty shelves weren't surprising. I mean, I, I, I wasn't surprised to see empty shelves because when you see a shift like this, if you go back to March 2020, uh, the entire food service sector just closed. And so obviously you saw empty shelves. Same for, uh, for, for B.C., what's going on right now. So I'm not overly concerned about uh, food access for British Columbians. But it will have an impact on trades. I think it will have an impact probably on food affordability, so prices, and obviously choice. Uh, You're going to have to really adjust your expectations here.
2: So we were speaking with our agriculture minister here in BC about an hour ago on the show, and she, we were concerned about the dairy farms because a lot of dairy farms are located in this area that is really hard hit by the flooding. And she had suggested, Sylvain, that, you know, with the supply management system that, you know, dairy producers in other provinces will be asked to produce more, and that should stabilize the system. What do you think?
8: It's possible. Yeah, it's quite possible. They can do that. Because uh, I mean they can't import <laughs> dairy from the U.S. because of supply management. So other boards, I'm, I suspect that the BC Dairy Board has, which is actually a pretty good board by the way, very proactive. will Will make calls to Alberta, uh, to Saskatchewan, and perhaps even to Manitoba to see if uh, if they if they can get more milk as uh, processors in BC will be looking for. Uh, for uh, milk and butter fat to produce butter and yogurt and sour cream and all the stuff that British Columbians do buy, because supply management is 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 regionally based. So in British Columbia, the farms that you have in Abbotsford uh, are there to produce milk for British Columbians. That's it. So once when you have a, a, a an incident like this one, well you don't have a choice but to go to another province because capacity is severely compromised.
2: Right. So this is such a tricky situation because we've heard over and over again from the Trucking Association, from the government, that goods are moving, trucks are moving. That is a priority that the supply chains will hold. But it feels like people are still skeptical.
8: (laughs) I think they have every right to be skeptical. Uh, that's, That's human nature. However, I, I honestly think you need to trust the food supply chain as much as you can, uh, blindly uh, probably, because a lot of people uh, over last. What I've learned over the last twenty months or so is that a lot of people wanted a, a transparent supply chain, but since since the pandemic started, they wanted to understand how it works, but. Supply chains are super complicated. I mean, it's not easy to explain to someone why things are costing more and why things have slowed down, and and why uh, is uh, this rupture uh, in a system uh, will impact uh, people directly. So it's 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 always difficult for people to understand something that is completely obscure and abstract. Because that's what supply chains are all about. So I'm not surprised that people are still skeptical, but you need to trust food supply chains as much as you can.
2: Right. That's my understanding, too, is that right now the system is working the way it is supposed to, right? That the priority is to get these trucks moving again, and we've heard that that's going to happen.
8: I I think there's an underappreciation for how supply chains are resilient. They do adapt. That's the beauty of supply chains; They do adapt. Now, again, if you're expecting perfection, you're expecting everything to be normal, well, I don't think it's realistic. You, you want to adjust your expectations as much as possible.
2: Right. So that, that tells us to have a little faith in, in how the system works.
8: Faith. Well, that's a good word, actually. Yes, faith. That's that's it. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> you need to have faith in something you you can't see because you can't see supply chains. They're super complex, very very intricate. And yes, absolutely, you want to trust your grocer. You want to trust processors. But my my going back to the farming community in Abbotsford and, and in the area, I mean, they're they're going to be suffering. Qu- Quite a lot, I, I think, for the next little while. And so processors will get ingredients elsewhere, but not from them, and they'll be suffering financially, unfortunately.
2: Right, and hopefully they will get some help on that. But Sylvain, thank you so much for joining us.
8: My pleasure. Bye-bye.
2: Sylvain Charlebaugh, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And listen, if there was going to be a problem in the supply chain, he would pretty much be the person that would tell us that. And his message is to trust the supply chain. That goods are moving. Goods will continue to move, because the supply chain is more resilient than a lot of realize. That's, that a lot of us realize that is the message we have gotten continually from government, from the trucking association, from the people in charge, and from people who work in the grocery industry. The supplies are coming. Might be a little slower, but the supplies are coming.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: You know, if things weren't crazy right now, I guess more of us would have paid attention to what was happening at Vancouver City Council last night because there was something pretty significant. Council voted 10 to 1 in favor of implementing vacancy control in privately owned SRO buildings. Why is that so significant? Well, it's an effort to improve tenancy stability And to prevent the displacement of low-income residents, it puts a limit on the maximum rent increases uh, between tenants. So why is this so significant? Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson, who has been advocating for this for years. Thank you very much for joining us.
9: Hi, Simi. Thank you. Welcome.
2: What is so significant about this? Why is it so important?
9: Well, it's important to basically try and close off another pipeline into homelessness What's happening is um, when single-room occupancy hotel buildings, which are kind of the last resort before homelessness, when they're sold, they're usually sold on the pretext that they're micro-units. And often the rents go up really high when the new owner evicts the current low-income tenants. In some, There's one place um, the rents went from 375 to $1,100. Um, when one of the speakers told us about yesterday. So I've been working on this actually for years from before I was elected when I was volunteering at Carnegie and people would come in and say their landlord was trying to get rid of them. He just bought the building and he wanted to raise the rents. And sometimes they even buy tenants out, like give them $1,000. And a lot of those... A lot of people have never seen $1,000 like that, so it's hard for them to resist. And then they can't find another place or the place they do find is really, really expensive and the $1,000 gets used up really fast.
2: Right. So were the rules different for this then, Councillor? Because mm-hmm. isn't there a limit as to how much a landlord can raise the rent already?
9: So there's two parts to rent control. One is the annual limit, which I think next year is 1.5%. So you can only raise the rent 1.5% per year. But the other part is how much can you raise the rent when a tenant leaves or dies or is evicted? And right now in BC, that's you can raise it unlimited and an unlimited amount. And so that's, that's the part of rent control that this city action will try to control.
2: Okay, so what will this city action do?
9: It'll make it so that when a tenant leaves, you can't raise m- rents as much as you like. For and there's uh, three categories. One is for if you're, if the current rents are under 375, which is mostly in the Chinese benevolent society buildings, you can raise it up to 375. If the rent is uh, uh, between 375 and 500, you can raise it by the annual allowable amount plus 5%. And if it's over 500 you can just raise it by the annual allowable amount.
2: Okay. And so this... Or
9: inflation, by inflation, that is, yeah.
2: Right. So this, you feel like that was something that was contributing to a lot of people, as you said, having no place to go.
9: Yeah. Yeah. It reduces the number of units that are available for really low-income people. So and contributes to homelessness by doing that. Lots of people who were evicted that way ended up in Strapcona Park or Oppenheimer Park and on the street.
2: If that's the case, then, how did it take us so long to do something about this? Well, the city has been calling
9: it for it for four years. I've been working on it, I think, uh, since at least 2009. (laughs) So it's actually a provincial responsibility. Rent control is usually seen as provincial. And uh, we've been trying to get the province to do it. But there was a court case in New Westminster about renovations evictions that made it seem likely that the city could do it too. And that court case survived a couple of court challenges. And so uh, the city lawyer said, yep, we can do this. And so
0: hmm.
9: we voted for it last night. I'm so happy. Now all we have to do is get the money to implement it.
2: Well, that's what I'm wondering. What about enforcement here? Because isn't that going to be the key?
9: Yeah, it will be. And then there's two parts to the enforcement. One is uh, having the landlords give the city their rent rolls every January when they get their business license renewed. And the other is a lot of education so that tenants can make complaints if rents are raised, you know, oh, a lot.
2: Right. So you mentioned then that that's going to be the next step. So what happens now? Uh,
9: Now we see how much the city puts in the budget for this. And that decision is supposed to be made in early December. And so that would be... If the money money goes in, it'll be enforced right away.
2: Okay, because it's going to take some while to cut. You have to build this database up too, right?
9: Uh, I think the city already has uh, quite a few... Uh, rent rolls from landlords. They've met with the city. Did the city staff did an awesome job on this? They met with landlords. They met with tenants. They met with community groups, and um, I think everybody knows what's about to happen. And they, I think they've already got some rent rules.
2: All right. So we'll see what happens then. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay. You're welcome. That is Jean Swanson, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about a vote last night at Vancouver City Council 10 to 1. They voted in favour of implementing vacancy control to privately owned SR buildings. Now you may look at that or the headline and think, okay, well, what's the big deal there? Well, it sounds like it is a very big deal because up until now, if a tenant moved out of an SRO, while the landlord, the owner of the building could then hike up the rent as much as they wanted, thereby making it more difficult for somebody else who desperately needed that SRO in that neighborhood to move into it. It seems like that's quite a big loophole that we had there in the vacancy rules in the province. Well, this now means they can't do that. There are new rules being put in place to limit how much a landlord in a single room occupancy building can raise the rent. So that, according to Jean uh, Jean Swanson there, the counselor says will make a huge difference in terms of helping people stay in a place that they find an affordable place there. If you want to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com, just happening last night, so I know there'll be more reaction to that.